So we are in John 1, verses 19 through 34. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one whom you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave his testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Let the church say, let's pray. Father, thank you for our brother John the Baptist, who has taught us so much about following Jesus. And we pray now as we celebrate during this time of year, Advent, our expectation and hope that Jesus is coming, that the spirit that John the Baptist lived his life in, a spirit of expectation, a spirit of hope and pointing to Jesus, that that perspective would belong to us as well. So now, Father, as the scriptures have been read, we ask that you would implant the seed into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Before I start, I have to do something. Props to my friend Frank for these socks. He's going to Chicago. So Frank got me these for Christmas, and I told my wife that I have to wear them before he leaves for Chicago. So thank you, Frank. I love you, my friend. John chapter 1, verses 19 to 34, as we're continuing the Advent series. This morning, the talk is going to be called, John, a Desert Voice. It was 1.30 a.m., April 4th, in 2013, in the woods of northern Maine, the state police arrested 47-year-old Christopher Thomas Knight while he was breaking into a North Pond cabin. And among the stolen items were 10 rolls of Smarties candies, a couple of bags of marshmallows, two cans of ground coffee, a bag of potato chips, and frozen hamburger and bacon. What else does somebody need for a living? The police had finally caught this elusive criminal 
After 27 years, they had captured the renowned northern pond hermit. See, Christopher Knight had lived in the wilderness of northern Maine for 27 years without any human contact. And he began his journey in late summer of 1986 at 20 years of age. He drove his car as far as he could into the northern Maine wilderness and basically ran it out of gas, got out of his car, put the keys in the console, and walked away for 27 years. And for 27 years, he'd been living a mile from these cabins there in the, the woods in, of northern Maine. And he would, a couple of times a year, several times a year, he said approximately 40 times a year, would break in, steal whatever he needed from these cabins to survive, and then disappear back into his little hidden campsite. Um, and over the 27 years, he estimated that he stole 1,000 or broke into 1,000 cabins. Um, but in 27 years, he never lit a fire for fear the smoke would give him away. He had not made a phone call, driven a car, or spent money. He had never in his life, get this, sent an email or even seen the internet. Because in 1986, he disappeared. And the internet was the 90s thing, right? He hadn't seen a doctor or taken medicine. And when asked about this, because he hadn't been sick in 27 years, he remarked, you have to have contact with other humans to get sick. <laughs> For 27 years of health in the frozen tundra of northern Maine. And only once in 27 years did he actually come in contact with another human being. It was four years into his hermitage. As he was hiking, he saw a fellow hiker and the interview asked him what he said. He said, I said, hi. And it was, that was the singular syllable he said in all 27 years of being a hermit. And he was finally captured on April 4th, 2013 um, at 1.30 a.m. in the morning. Um, a journalist by the name of Michael Finkel, who actually conducted the interview with Christopher Knight after he was captured, um, wrote an, actually an interesting book called The Stranger in the Woods, the extraordinary story of the last true hermit. But in the last interview that uh, Michael Finkel did with Chris before he was released from jail, he asked him about basically going back into society. And this is what the hermit, who hadn't spoken for 27 years, said. I don't know about your world, only my world, and memories of the world before I went into the woods. What life is today, what is proper, I have to figure out how to live. He wished he could return to his camp. He said, I miss the woods, but knew because of the rules of his probation that he could not go back into the woods. So sitting, he says, sitting here in jail, I don't like what I see in society that I'm about to enter. I don't like, I don't, I don't think I'm going to fit in. It's too loud, too colorful, the lack of aesthetics, the crudeness, the inanities, the trivia. When Christopher Knight disappeared for 27 years into the woods, he did not do so for any spiritual or noble purposes. He simply disappeared because he was a man who wanted to be left alone. But it's interesting, there is a perspective that one gains when they pull away from society for periods of time and are able to view it from a place of separation. 
Most of us are so entrenched and entwined in the society in which we find ourselves that we don't see some of the silliness and, as he would say, the inanities that we live with every day. And many of the great minds, thinkers, creatives, and geniuses of really world history, world history has been shaped by people who were willing to take steps away from society to view it in solitude, and then to reemerge and engage. Several of the most renowned who speak on solitude as a virtue that was necessary for genius, um, one being, of course, the most well-known physicist, Albert Einstein, who spoke of solitude in this way. He said, I live in that solitude which is painful in youth, but delicious in the years of maturity. And I think those of us who are getting a little older like me can start to understand what a statement like that means. The, the famed Spanish artist Pablo Picasso said, without great solitude, no serious work is possible. And perhaps the most famous American inventor, Thomas Edison, is quoted as saying, the best thinking has been done in solitude. The worst has been done in turmoil. Amen? This morning, we are introduced to a wonderful, mysterious man called John the Baptist. He is the voice of the sacred desert. He emerges back into society with a message, something to say about the Christ. And he's one of the greats in Christian history. Actually, Jesus said about John the Baptist, among those born of women, there is none greater except for those who are least in the kingdom. To that point, Jesus was able to say, Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, no one has come on the scene, no prophet, no sage, no poet that is greater than John the Baptist. Later in John's gospel, the people were saying about John that he never performed a sign or a miracle, but all that he said about this man, Jesus, was true. What a thing to be said about you. You went down in history as someone who never did anything necessarily miraculous, but you said true things about Jesus Christ. That was the report of John's life. And John the Baptist was a very fascinating character. He's the son of a priest, a guy named Zacharias, a miraculous conception. Um, he's six months older than Jesus, and somehow he's his cousin. Um, and when John was going to be born... Zacharias was met by the angel of the Lord. And when the angel of the Lord announces that this son John was going to be born to the priest Zacharias, this is what Luke's record says about John the Baptist. So just listen carefully to this description of what John was like. So whatever your images are of John, and we're going to paint some wild images of this wild man. But this morning, just allow this piece of scripture in Luke chapter 1 verse 14, the angel of the Lord said to Zacharias, this is what your son is going to be like. He will be a joy and delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Yet, he's never to take wine or fermented drink. He's probably taking a Nazarite vow. And it will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Remember that? He jumped up in his mom's womb when he heard the announcement that Christ was coming. He will bring many back, bring back many of the people of the, Israel to the Lord their God. 
He's going to lead a reformation, a revival, a movement. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What a description of John. He's from the Levitical tribe, so in essence, he could qualify as a priest. He was a Nazarite. Uh, Numbers chapter 6 spoke of those who would separate themselves, some for periods of time, some for a lifetime. John was a Nazarite, filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. But it says that he would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now, if you've ever studied the ancient prophet Elijah, put your hand up if you know anything about Elijah up in the house. So Elijah and John the Baptist have some incredible similarities in, in the way they dressed, in the messages that they spoke, in the way that they did their lives. And there's a prophecy given at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, predicting that someone was going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so if you would, John the Baptist comes as the Elijah figure that was prophesied in Malachi, one who would return Israel to their roots to return them to God. And Luke tells us in chapter 1, verse 80 of his writing, that John the Baptist lived in the wilderness until he was to appear publicly and declare Jesus. So most of John's life was lived with a group of people, most historians say, called the Essenes. They were these desert dwellers, these desert fathers. And if you've ever read any of the ancient desert fathers, um, you know that each one of them has John the Baptist as the symbol, as the father of their movement. John the Baptist was an interesting guy because his outfit was camel's hair with a leather belt. His diet was locusts and wild honey. He was just kind of this countercultural guy. He would have fit in in Carborough and um, Chapel Hill and stuff like that. Uh, just kind of a, I mean, we might call him a hippie, um, you know. But the thing is that John the Baptist wasn't a peaceful hippie because his message was intense and deliberate. And when he showed up on the scenes, John was a wave maker. John uh, challenged the societal norms. And, and you can read, there's a passage in Luke chapter 3 where it speaks of John rebuking every facet of society. Basically, John came to the religious crowd and called them a brood of vipers and, and warned them of the judgment that was coming. And he even said to them, and don't say just because you're children of Abraham that it means anything because God could raise up stones to be children of Abraham. No big deal being a child of Abraham. He said, the ax has already been laid to the tree. That is, judgment is coming. The ax has begun to chop down the tree. Bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. Be made right with God. And John was baptizing for repentance paving away. And after John's message, this brood of vipers message, many people came to him and they, they asked him, what are we supposed to do? And the crowds came in Luke chapter three, verses seven through 20 and asked John, what should we do? And he said, you need to share with the poor. If you have two shirts, wear one, give one away. If you have two coins, take one for yourself and give the other one away. Be generous. The tax collectors asked John, what should we do? And he basically said, just stop ripping people off. The soldiers, the Roman soldiers came to John, believe it or not, and asked him, well, what should we do? And he said, stop extorting money, stop being corrupt, and be content with how much you get paid. John had something to say, but then John gets extra radical because John, like any righteous person, it was not a respecter of persons. 
We love people, but we don't fear them. The Bible says the fear of man is a snare. So John goes to Herod, the king. This is a powerful person. But Herod had been acting immorally, for he had taken his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, to be his own wife. And John the Baptist gets in Herod's face and says, this is wrong, and he basically reprimands him on that and all the other evils that he had committed. And for that, we find out that John the Baptist is locked in prison. And he will stay there until he loses his head, as you know the story. John the Baptist, a radical man of God. And I would guess that most of us would consider John the Baptist to be a Christian hero, as would most Christians. But here's the thing about John the Baptist. Most of us, though we we like him back there, we would not like him today. John the Baptist would be a hard person to have in your church. Because I I guarantee this, he wouldn't be easy on us. He would probably be speaking to the lukewarm church in America and calling us to press into God. He'd probably be speaking to societal evils and to a corrupt government And John would be, though heroized and memorialized in the past, would be a controversial, wave-making figure if he were on the scene today. And if you've studied a little bit of history and you know anything about heroes, most heroes that we memorialize today were hated, outcasts, and controversial in the day that they were doing their great feats that we now make statues and name streets for them for. See, in their day, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. So it's easy for us to go, yeah, John the Baptist, what a radical man of God. We probably would have had a hard time with him because he probably would say things to me that would cut right to the heart. And I think, man, don't invite that guy to guest speak at your church. That's a way to shrink an American church, have John the Baptist come and guest speak because he's going to disrupt all your comforts. I was doing a little reading about some of the greats in history and how they came to make waves and challenge societal norms, and I thought of a few of them. Um, Corey Tim Boom, who helped hide the Jews during the Holocaust there in World War II and was later uh, captured and uh, sentenced to a concentration camp herself. Or Martin Luther King Jr., of course, who the Baptist preacher, civil rights activist, martyr who died for the cause that he stood for, was assassinated. Um, There's a woman by the name of Sojourner Truth. That was her name after she began her movement. Uh, The the street I live in is actually named after her. Uh, Her slave name was Isabella. And uh, I remember when we moved to our house here in Raleigh, we've been there for the last three years, um, just driving in, we knew there was something significant about the name of the street we moved into, Sojourner Truth. We began to do a little research and found out that this Isabella was a uh, slave that eventually found her liberation, was freed, became an abolitionist, and she was an itinerant evangelist and a women's rights activist um, in her day. And then I was just thinking about the, what I know about the, the man who's called the father of modern missions, William Carey. If you've studied anything about w- William Carey, you know this. Um, the day that he decided that he was going to go to India for the gospel, he was not backed by the British church. He was actually resisted by his mother church. When he stood up one time in a meeting to declare the Great Commission and, and, and announce his calling, one of the elders in his church said, young man, sit down. So he went, William Carey, to India without any support from home. 
During the time that he was there, he did some great things. I think he translated, he and his team, the Bible into 34 Asian languages, started multiple churches, mission bases, and he, he did a lot of good for the social construct there in India. So he wasn't just spiritual, he also did things for the, for the fabric of the, the culture and the societal structure there in India. But during his time in India, three of his six children died. His wife went insane from the hardship, the poverty, the malaria, all the sicknesses and illness that the illnesses that they endured. Add on top of that, multiple times, I think it was once at least, if not twice, in 1812, at least once, all of most of William Carey's work was burned to the ground, all of his translation work that he labored so hard for. It took him years before he saw one convert in India. But to date, there's not been a man who has more shaped our understanding of the modern missions movement than William Carey, but not without a sacrifice or pain or being an ostracized man socially. I think of Harriet Tubman or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, William Wilberforce or John Bunyan. All great men and women yet greatly misunderstood in their time. It was that great American revolutionary writer, Ralph Waldo Emerson, that said to be great is to be misunderstood. If you don't want to be misunderstood, you won't do anything that's not just right in the flow of what everybody else is doing. You know what the world doesn't need? Another person trying to fit in to what everybody else is doing. I'm not saying we need to be weird Christian weird just to be weird Christian weird. But being a Christian is weird. It just is. I'm sorry, following the way of Jesus is not the way of society. And if your main concern is not to make waves, to not be controversial, and you're concerned about being popular, You'll never fit the role of, of world changers and shapers. To be great is to be misunderstood. And if your chief aim in life is to be understood and well-liked, there will come a point where you're going to have to face off with being popular or following Jesus. It doesn't mean that following Jesus doesn't sometimes win us favor with God and men. But there does come a point like John the Baptist had to decide either I'm going to be concerned of whether or not they like me or I'm going to do what I was made to do. And John lost his life in the mission that he was on. His head was taken off because he was a truth teller. He was a revolutionary. We love to memorialize him, but he would be hard to take in the church today. And we could say probably a lot of things about John the Baptist when it comes to who he was, but John chapter 1 really gives us his main purpose. Was he a revolutionary spiritual leader? Yes, he was. Was he a social justice crusader? Absolutely. Was he a prophet and a priest? Yes, yes, yes. But if it were to come down to what John really shows us was what he was all about in John chapter 1, we see that really, as it came to the religious Jews, in John chapter 1, they approached John and they asked him, who are you? They want to know who he is. So this is the moment where his identity is being questioned. You got to know who you are. Who are you? And John shows us here, he knew two things about his own identity. He knew who he was, and he knew who he wasn't. And those are equally important. They said, we see all this that you're doing, all the people you're baptizing, the crowds you're gathering. 
Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? We had hoped that Messiah would come. Are you that one? And he declared and he knew, I, John said, am not the Christ. And if there's any verse for you to underline, underline that for yourself. Peter, you are not the Christ. Y'all with the Savior complex, thinking that you're the Messiah of the world, you are not the Christ. You point to the Christ, you worship the Christ, but you are not the Christ. John knew, I am not the, I'm not the promised one. I am not the Messiah. And they said, okay, you're not Messiah. Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you that prophet? You know the one that was spoken of in Deuteronomy 18, that God's going to raise up a prophet like Moses? Are you that Deuteronomy 18 prophet? He said, I am not. I know who I'm not. I am not going to let you define me. I'm not going to let you tell me who I am. I know who I am. Well, they said, well, then, if you're not the Messiah, and if you're not Elijah, and if you're not that prophet, then who are you? And he said, quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, he said, I am a voice of one calling in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord. From years of living in the desert, in silence and solitude, John knew who he was. He knew who he wasn't, and he knew who he was. And there are two truths that you must know in order for you to live a successful life. And they're in this order, who Jesus is, and by consequence, who then are you? He answers who Jesus is. There are three things that John says. He knows about himself. I know who I am, and I know who I'm not. It's really freeing to know who you're not because then when people start to say things about you that don't fit who God has declared you to be, you can say, that's just not me. I'm not that. You know, I remember there was, in my old church, big church, so people didn't get as close to me as y'all do. Um, There was, you know, a lot of people and a few staff. Um, People used to think I was wonderful. I don't hear that as much here. Um, (laughs) Hi, Sarah, people say, you're so spiritual. You know the Bible so well. You're like a Bible encyclopedia. You're such a man of prayer. And you know what? If I was just being honest as I should have been, I would just say, I am not. I yelled at my kid. I kicked my dog. Not really, but metaphorically. (laughs) Wanted to, but haven't yet kicked the dog. Um, I am not. I am not those things. Now, I've got, there are good things about what God has done in my life, but you know what? I'm not going to try to be pretentious and allow anybody to think more of me than they should anymore. And And John's time saturating, marinating in the solitude and silence of the desert made him confident that I know who I am. But he also knew who Jesus was and what he knew about Jesus was very important. So you might jot these down. As he spent time in the wilderness, he became very acquainted with who he was and who Jesus was. Let me just say this to you. Those two truths, once you find them, will be challenged the rest of your life. As I was standing there in the hospital with Jen and Evan, as I was preparing for this and thinking back on that moment, standing there with them, I thought, they're being challenged about who Jesus is. Is he good? Is he a healer? Is he here? How does this all work out in the grand scheme? Life will, circumstances will challenge who Jesus is to you. But John in this moment of his life, had the understanding of who Jesus is. He says of Jesus, first, when he sees him coming down the Jordan, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. That's who Jesus is. 
Later, he goes on to say, this is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's who Jesus is. He's the Lamb of God who deals with sin. He's the one who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. And then at the end of this little section we read, he said, and I know that he is God's chosen one. And that answers all of life. Those three truths answer all of life. As we ask ourselves, what God is going to do about my past? The Lamb of God, he takes away the sins of the world. That's what God does with your past, your sin. He takes it away. He's the Lamb of God. Well, how am I going to live in the present? He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to live. John says, he takes away sin. He gives you power to live, the Holy Spirit. And then, what am I going to do about my future? Well, he's God's chosen one. He's the one who's going to set the world to rights. He's going to put back in order a disordered world. He's redeeming and will ultimately redeem. How many believe that? There are people that were up here this morning living in a, in a state of um, disorder in their bodies and in their minds. And you know what? My hope is the chosen one is going to reorder the disorder. Not all of it is going to be realized this side of glory, right? Because we're all going to die of something. Sorry. But while on the earth, we also believe in a redeemer who puts order to disorder, who reorders. And, and so when John says that is the chosen one, it means this is the one who's going to make it right. Past, present, and future. He's got you. And one of my convictions about the confidence and calling that John the Baptist had is that he built this confidence in the holy desert, in a place of silence and solitude, alone with God. He learned to be confident in who Jesus was and who he was. I'm convinced that in order for us to live the kind of life and be the kind of people for Jesus that we want to be, that silence and solitude is essential in order to gain a proper view of God, yourself, and the world. When John emerges from the desert after all of his life basically living out in the desert, he comes in and speaks a confident message because he had spent time alone with God. You know what's interesting though? At the end of John's life, Matthew chapter 11 tells, he was being imprisoned. Circumstances had been tough. He spoke the truth to Herod. You should not be with this woman, Herodias. That's your brother's wife. The way you're running the country, the things you're doing, your dishonesty, the way you're running things is wrong. He gets thrown in prison for it. And while in prison, not able to be in the desert the way he had been formerly, the questions he had on lockdown started getting a little shaky. So he sends messengers to Jesus and says, ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? Did I have it right? Did all that I learned in the desert, was that correct about you? And you know what Jesus does? He says, tell John, the lame are walking, the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are being raised. In other words, tell John that the Isaiah prophecies about what Messiah would do when he's come are happening. They're happening. Tell John that. And then as they leave, 
The messenger's no longer there. They go back to, to John to say, John, Jesus told us to let you know that all the signs of Messiah are happening through him. Remember, John wasn't a miracle worker. He wasn't a healer. He did no sign or wonder, but all the things he said of Jesus were true. But Jesus says, you tell John, in me are the signs of Messiah. I am bringing life from death. I am opening ears and eyes and helping the lame to walk. I am cleansing lepers. I am doing these things because that's what Messiah does when he comes. Then when the messengers are gone, that's when Jesus decides to tell everybody in the crowd, John is a great man. He's doubting right now, but his doubts don't define him. The, 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 the fact that he was so confident saying, that's the Lamb of God, and he takes away sin, and he baptizes with the Holy Spirit, that's God's chosen one. And then he gets thrown in prison, and circumstances make atheists of us all sometimes. And sometimes you think that doubt in the prison defines you. And Jesus would say, after he had given John the hope that he needed, just tell John stuff's happening, Messiah stuff's happening. And then when his messengers are gone, he says, I just want you guys to know, I think much of John. There's actually no one greater born of a woman than this guy. And then, then he goes, he says this really interesting thing. He says, and blessed are they who are not offended in me. You know, it's easy to be offended with God. It's easy to be offended with God. Because sometimes you were out in the deserts seeking God. You, you, you got sure on who you were and who Jesus is, who Jesus is first, who you were second. And then that all got tested. You got thrown into prison. Something went wrong. And then your theology gets all shaky and wonky. And you start asking questions. Are you really the Messiah? Is this the, really the way I should go? And that moment doesn't define you. Because underneath it all, God is not afraid of your doubts. But there is a special, special thing that Jesus says. Blessed is the one who doesn't become offended in me. so easy when life gets hard to wonder. My pastor used to always tell us this, and I, I think it's true. He said, never sacrifice what you know on the altar of what you do not know. And sometimes there's these questions that arise. I don't understand this suffering. I don't understand this circumstance. And it's at that time that I get offended with Jesus. But I'm, I'm, I'm one who believes that at the, after John heard this testimony, he went back to his first love. He returned to what he knew in the desert. And I know that there are men and women who God specially raises up as prophets and revolutionaries and leaders. Men like John, who are voices in the wilderness. But I also believe that God's church, that we all are to be, if you would, voices in the wilderness. But it's going to require that we have daily, weekly, monthly, yearly rhythms where we get alone with God. If you're not someone who is frequently alone with God, you are not being the John the Baptist to your world that you're ordained to be. You cannot live a distracted life and have a sense of God and yourself in the world.
And I think one of the greatest distractions, excuse me for sounding like an old fuddy-duddy at almost 40 years old, is the smartphone. It just keeps us from the wilderness. Technology, all good, they have good things. I love them. I run with it all the time. and listening to music and podcasts and learning stuff. But there's a distraction that keeps us from being John the Baptist to the world in the way we're supposed to be. Dallas Willard actually said that silence and solitude are the two most radical disciplines of the Christian life. Henry, now in the priest, author, and thinker, said, Without solitude, it is almost impossible to live a spiritual life. And the scriptures actually command our worship to have periods of silence and solitude. Psalm 37, 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. And the Lord often speaks to men and women in the desert. So I'm going to challenge you with two things to practice this week. As it concerns the holy desert, as it concerns silence and solitude, it's a spiritual discipline. It cannot be underrated on how important silence and solitude is for your life, for your mental clarity, for your performance at work, for your relationships. You need periods where you shut it all down and you get alone with God and, and, and not even so much worry about will he say anything, will it just be silent. Listen, the silence is its own sacred beauty. You need to be still before the Lord. And it's the hardest and best thing you can do. I would say almost above everything else that the prayers that happen in silence and solitude, when you're just breathing in and breathing out in quietness before the Lord, that is its own prayer. That's a place where your identity, who Jesus is, all start to crystallize and form in your heart to a way that you can step out into a world that's disordered and disorganized and far from the kingdom and you can say, I know who I am and I know who he is. Without that in my life though, I get as confused as John in the prison. Are you really the one? Or so we'd be looking for somebody else. Is this all true? So this week, I'm going to challenge you with a couple of things. Um, so first, the first challenge about these holy deserts that I want to call us into is um, as part of your daily time with God, to take this challenge sometime this week, just fit it right into whatever you do every day. And if you don't do something every day, I would challenge you to try to do something every day. We say, well, man, I'm like a 50 percenter. Great. Just keep pressing forward. Just because you're not nailing it, don't quit. That's the thing. In training, in life, in dieting, in school and everything, you're not going to nail every test. You won't nail every run. You're not going di- to nail every lift. You won't nail every day on the diet, but stick to it. Be a fighter. Be rebellious. Stand against the flow that says that you should just quit if, it, if it's hard. It's hard to spend a day every day with God in some capacity to carve out space, but I challenge you to fight for that space in every day. And in that space, I'm going to challenge you to take five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Most who teach on centering prayer actually teach that it takes about 20 minutes. But start small. And in and, and, and your everyday life, I would just challenge you to practice silence and solitude, to get back to that. 
Your phone should be nowhere near you. No computers, no televisions. And I'm going to post some stuff on the city. Actually, Peter Scazzaro, who wrote the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality book that we love, um, wrote some practical guidelines that I'm going to refer to. But here's a basic rundown of how this practice can look. And, and here, just some recommendations from Scazzaro that I'll pass on to you. First of all, and I think this is very important, give yourself grace as you begin this new spiritual practice. If this isn't something you've ever done, it's not going to go awesome the first time. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. Give yourself some grace. You're starting something new. Secondly, find a place where you're going to be in un uninterrupted. This is crucial. So if you have kids like I do, it's hard to find that space. So it's going to be early mornings for me. If you're a late night person, it might be after everyone's in bed. But, but find a space where you can really lean in. And find interrupted space. Then, sit up straight, like your mom used to always tell you. Relax by focusing on your breathing, slowly, deeply, and naturally. Now, this might sound weird, but as I've practiced this, I find that, you know, the silence can really start to get to me, but if I focus on my breathing, and, it's, and, and breath, the, the word breath in the Hebrew, ruach, it's spirit. God puts the breath in your lungs. There's something sacred about breath, and as you just sit there and you just allow the silence to just begin to envelop you. And you relax. You focus on breathing. Natural. And just let, the, let your breath just, you just relax. You're sitting before God. And then prayerfully offer yourself to God. Letting go of cares and worries. And I would suggest doing this metaphorically by just opening up your hands. Just saying, God, all the things are here. I'm just, right now, I'm yours. It's all yours. And then, I would suggest maybe closing your eyes. Or if not, down to the floor. Just so you're not, you're audio-visual, you're not being distracted by what you're seeing. You're eliminating visual distractions. And then just let yourself go to enjoy silence. And maybe at first you have to set a timer. Um, or whatever, just enjoy the period of silence. Um, just enjoying the Lord in that time. I would just challenge you, add that in to your prayer time. Take that challenge this week. I would actually, I'm gonna suggest that you do it Christmas morning. You know, I'm always now, as a dad, I'm afraid of Christmas morning. It's, I just know it's gonna be a disappointment because I probably didn't get my kids everything they wanted. I'm probably not going to be happy with their reactions. They're going to be acting greedy. I'm going to get frustrated. The dog's going to be doing his thing. You know, it's just going to be that. And then all of a sudden, everything that I planned is we're going to be centered and it's going to be a holy morning and it's Jesus and it all just goes and presents and it gets all wonky. And then I'm like grumpy by the middle of the day and I have to go out by myself for a while. But I would challenge you Christmas morning, however you spend your Christmas, Get up a little earlier and practice silence and solitude. Um, the second thing I'm going to just challenge you, and this, take it or leave it, but it's a challenge and I, and I dare you to do it, um, is I would challenge you to watch the silent sermon. Now, we did this as our men's group, and it might have been awkward for a few guys. A lot of, you could hear like stomachs rumbling and um, guys just, you know, it was just, it was interesting to, to sit that long in silence. Um, but 
uh, Peter Scazzaro, the church in Queens, New York, he actually did a silent sermon. Uh, sermon is probably the wrong term, a silent service, where he literally, I think it was a half hour long, had his church sit together, a big church in New York, in silence. Um, I, I challenge you to watch that. Um, I actually would love to see our media, I think our media team could do a way better job than they did. I didn't think theirs was very good. I mean, it was the only silent sermon I could watch, so it was fine. But I was like, man, our crew could just toast this. So someday we are going to have a silent Sunday morning, um, and it's going to be awesome. But um, watch this one. I, I think it'll be helpful for you. Um, but I guess I just want to end by saying this. Um, I don't know if it's happening to you, but it's happening to me. There are two truths that matter more than anything, who Jesus is and who I am. And I am constantly being challenged in those two things. And the Lord is calling me back into some of these ancient practices of getting back to quiet time with God. Because I want to speak like a prophet. I want to speak like an apostle. I want to speak like a revolutionary. I want to speak as one who has been with God. And you know there's a difference when you're hearing from someone who has been with God because the words they say and the, the disposition they have, it just smacks of heaven. It's different. If you've ever been around someone who's been in the presence of the Lord, when they're singing or speaking or hanging out with you, there's just this difference about them. You won't be different if you don't go into the desert and let God wash over you. And let all the stuff that's stirring up. And you know, for, for the introverts, they're like, yeah, silence and solitude. Listen, all of you introverts aren't doing silence and solitude in the way that we're talking about here. You just don't want people around. You're like Christopher Knight, just hermits. Just want to get, get everyone away. doesn't mean it's holy. It just means it's, you know, you want to be by yourself. Um, and you extroverts are thinking, no, silence and solitude. That's like a nightmare. I don't want to be alone. We're afraid to be alone. But there's nothing more necessary at this day and age than for a people to walk in clarity. We need to walk in clarity so that we can be bold, so that we can be true to Jesus and to ourselves. And if, 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 you're, if you're struggling with identity crises, if you're struggling with, with, with trusting in Jesus and, and knowing Jesus and all the noise out there, a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, and I would even suggest maybe another thing, is there maybe a, a time and space for us to plan quiet retreats for ourselves? And if you want to look at it, practicingtheway.org that Bridgetown Church in Portland does, they actually have an outline on how to do an uh, eight-hour silent day retreat. Um, might be a challenge for you. But all, all I'm saying is, if you and I want to be different in this world, to be the kind of people that the world needs, we want to be John the Baptists, then we, we've got to go out into the sacred desert and become voices from the desert, voices from the silence and solitude, people that can speak prophetically from what we've been hearing from God. Amen?